This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also made possible by our patrons. Ellen Gross, Chantel Oliver, Jamie Lang, Mandy Booty, Alana Richardson, Pam Toller, and Mari B. Hedgecoff. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. I'm going to tell you a story. Yay! This story is about an Idaho farm girl who forms a singing group with her cousin and her aunt (laughs) and ends up headlining at the most famous nightclub in the world. Wait, I think I got this one. (laughs) In Shanghai? How did you know? Let me see. Can I guess her name? Regina Weaver? (gasps) Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm related to her. (laughs) Hey, me too. She's my grandma. Wow. (laughs) For our listeners, our maternal grandmother, Regina Weaver, was a small-town farm girl, formed a little singing group, and somehow ends up the headliners at the Paramount Ballroom, the most famous nightclub in the world in 1934, in Shanghai, China. (laughs) As we talked about in a previous episode in our family... We grew up with the stories of our female ancestors. Those are the stories that we know. Yeah. And I thought that was normal, but I'm discovering more and more that is not true at all. Mm-hmm. And that so many people don't even know the names of the women in their family histories. So last year on Twitter, I started this thread asking listeners to give us the stories of their awesome ancestresses. Mm-hmm. And some of these stories that people gave us were so incredible, I couldn't stand to leave them there. So, I have decided to share some of those stories in our very first Mother's Day special. Woohoo! So, Katie, today I have for you the stories of six remarkable foremothers from six of our listeners. Buckle up, we are headed on a round-the-world tour. Yes! Ranging over... 275 years Ah. to meet the ancestors. Cool. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Your Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Our very first guest is one of the co-hosts of the Dear World Love History podcast. Another podcast hosted by two sisters, Adrienne and Renee. And we are talking to Adrienne. I'm Adrian, and I am one of the co-hosts of the Dear World Love History podcast. We tackle the good, the bad, and the downright ugly history of the world, one episode at a time. So we start in summer of 1941. So my great-grandmother, Rosalia, who was 26 years old at the time, had two children, my grandmother, who was four, and my uh, great-aunt, Ina, and my grandmother was Sophia. Um, And Ina was six months old. Uh, my grand, my great grandfather was um, actually conscripted into the Red Army, so he was away. He wasn't home with them. And the Nazis on June sixth, 
were marching into the Soviet Union. They started pushing into Kiev, and my grandmother, great aunt, and great grandmother Rosalia were still in the apartment. So it's not like, you know, the Nazis will be here in four days. It's the Nazis, you know, are down the street sort of thing. And my great grandfather, actually, his platoon had dropped him off because his father actually lived with them and was paralyzed and bedridden. So he was dropped off so that he could go say goodbye to his father because he knew that, you know, there was no way that he could get him out of the city and burst into the apartment only to realize that his wife and children were still there. And my great-grandmother's sister was also there. She was 15, Cecilia. So that was a huge shock to him to realize that everyone in his family that he loved, who was supposed to be out of the city at this point, was not. And that's because my great-grandmother, Rosalia, she did not want to leave her father-in-law. And he kept telling her, like, you have to go, you have to take the children, the children are what's important, you have to run. So he said goodbye to his father. He got them onto the last train leading out of Kiev. And he went back to his platoon. So now we have two women and two baby girls on this last train out of Kiev, Mm. heading away deeper into Russia. They have made it out against all odds. And the Nazis bombed the train. Ugh. At this point, my great-grandmother, Rosalia, she did not hesitate. She took the children, she took Cecilia, and she ran. She just ran off the train. And this is a big open space. This, you know, a couple of trees here and there. It was a bit of a way to go between the train and the actual, you know, woods. They actually started being fired at by a Nazi who was flying plane. He kind of zoned in on them. So she pushed herself against the tree, you know, pushed the kids behind her. And she's thinking, you know, this is how it ends. This is it. This pilot is flying so low that they can see him in the plane. Here she is standing, trying to shield her children against a train, and she can see the pilot of this plane. And Adrian's grandmother, at four years old, remembers him laughing. Oh! Yeah, he was flying so low that he was just laughing at them and he's firing at their feet. You know, for whatever reason, I don't know why, they don't know why, but he didn't go for the kill shots. He shoots around them, torturing them, playing with them. Mm. But for whatever reason, he doesn't kill them. She grabbed the kids and she ran for it. This particular pilot has let them go. They're not out of danger. And they run to the swamp and they hide in the swamp Mm. for weeks. Oh, babies. Wow. They actually ended up living in the swamp for about a month, just kind of, you know, surviving until a group of Jewish partisans found them. And then they got them to safety. They put them on a cattle train deep into the heart of Russia. And that's where they spent the rest of the war. I can't even imagine it because the village they lived in, it was just, you know, ridden with disease and starvation. There wasn't enough food. They lived in a barn during this time period. My grandmother, basically, as soon as they got out there, she got a job. Again, she is four years old (laughs) and she has a job at this neighboring farm and she would, you know, she would do whatever work she had to do and then they would pay her with a quarter slice of bread and like a quarter glass of milk. 
and she carries it home because she knows that her baby sister needs it more than she does. Whoa. I can't, I mean, just the, the mm. image of this four-year-old yeah. carefully carrying this food back to her baby sister. Mm. You know, my great-grandmother, and as I imagine it would be with most mothers, that she made sure that the kids ate and she went hungry a lot of the time because she, obviously she wanted the children to thrive more so than herself. They all lived out the war, they survived it. At the end of it, happily, they were reunited with my great-grandfather who had also survived the war. You know, he'd been in combat, he'd had injuries, he actually had a piece of shrapnel under his heart. He has put her on this train and all he knows is this train is bombed. Ugh. And for years, they have no idea if the other one is alive. <sighs> They're just hoping, trying to get through as best they can in this tiny village. She is hoping he is still alive. He is hoping mm. that his entire family has not been massacred. Oh my gosh. And they don't know until the war ends. Wow. And they are finally able to come back to Kiev and try to find one another. But it's thanks to Rosalia that her little family was able to survive, that I am here. It definitely affected my life um, when my grandmother shared it with me. It gave me a newfound respect for my great-grandmother and uh, definitely helped me to understand what they went through and not let it completely demolish their life after the war. I think it definitely uh, helped shape my identity as a Jewish woman. I've always loved being Jewish and respected the culture and the traditions, but that allowed me to connect more with my family, especially my great-grandmother, who I had never met, and um, really, you know, just grasp everything that my family has gone through in order to get to this point in our life. Next, we are headed to Glasgow to meet a championship Highland dancer. Ooh. Who is the grandmother of Susan Stone. Oh, of the, the Dead Ladies show. Exactly. Oh, I love that. The producer of another fantastic women's history podcast. We highly yes. recommend. Love it. The Dead Ladies show podcast. Mm -hmm. These are live shows done in Berlin and then turned into podcast episodes. I'm Susan Stone, and I'm a journalist and podcaster producer in Berlin, Germany, and I produce a podcast called The Dead Lady Show Podcast. My grandmother, Margaret Stewart Haldane, was born in Glasgow in 1909, and uh, she was, as a child, a championship Highland dancer. So the winners of these competitions would get these beautiful silver medals, and they would then stitch them onto their dresses. Now, I don't think that they actually performed with the medals jingling around. Uh, I think that would be a bit difficult. There are some great photos we've shared on our website of her and her medals. And she won everything because her entire dress is medals. Oh, that's awesome. It's like dance medal armor. So our other sister mm -hmm. is an Irish dance champion. I love this method of display. Yeah, I think we should make her an apron yeah, of her medals. Definitely. That she can just wear around. Right. And I have quite a number of them, actually, in a box, and one in particular that I wear a lot. It was the prize given by the comrades of the Great War at Loch Gilped, which is near 
Inverary in Scotland, which we've now driven through a couple times, which is quite exciting for me. <laughs> the first time I saw it, um, my boyfriend is from Scotland, from near Glasgow, and uh, actually has the same birth date as, well, the same birthday, shall we say, as my grandmother. Ah, I love Scotland. Can't get enough. Me too. There's a, a shade of green that is in Scotland that isn't anywhere else in the world. Mm. Standing in Glencoe, mm. looking at that green, <laughs> I wept. <laughs> yeah, it taps into something a deep. A color should not make me cry, but mm. that color is in my DNA somewhere. Mm. <laughs> These are my people. Scotland is a, is a beautiful place, but... In the 20s, when the family came over, it wasn't necessarily the best place to live and for more opportunity. They came over to the U.S. starting in Chicago. So uh, she was 17 when her family immigrated, and then she met and married my grandfather when she was 20 years old, so that was in 1929. They lived for a while in Iowa, where my mother was born. Then it was the Depression. He lost his job in the factory, and his family came from Ohio, and they were wintering in Florida. So this is quite a popular thing to do, of course, still is. <laughs> and um, so they went to stay with his family in Florida. Now, at that time, much of the state was not developed, and it still is a pretty wild place. That's where I grew up, so I can say that. <laughs> and there was something called tin can tourism, where people were driving their tin lizzies, you know, there are early automobiles down there and either camping out or maybe settle, maybe invest in some property. And uh, it was still pretty wild. So my uh, great grandparents had done that already. They had built a home outside of Tampa, which was not the metropolis <laughs> that it is now. So my grandparents stayed there for a while. And then eventually they had some money that they could invest in building a house in a very rural area. It was a very small area. Eventually the highest number was 25 houses in the area, but at the time I think there were maybe just a couple. And so the family moves to Rattlesnake, Florida. <laughs> Now, this is the best place name I've ever heard. Yeah. So Rattlesnake, Florida, it's not even officially a town, mm -hmm. but it has its own post office. Oh. And that is largely the work of one very enterprising character named George End. Huh. Are there rattlesnakes in Florida? Oh, so many rattlesnakes. Ah. In fact, there's enough rattlesnakes that George End opens a roadside attraction, that most Florida of things. <laughs> George End's Reptilorium. Ooh. <laughs> which is a rattlesnake farm and cannery. <laughs> wait, wait. Canning. And cannery. Canning rattlesnake meat? Canning rattlesnake. Whoa! Yes. They canned rattlesnake but they had a whole rattlesnake show he, like all these rattlesnakes and you'd come and <laughs> oh see them gosh. and he would handle them and they would do all this stuff with the rattlesnakes wow that is enterprising it is a remarkable choice Whoa. and one that paid off really really well wow dangerous 
Florida is full of rugged individualists and uh, people with crazy ideas, and <laughs> here's one of them. So George End, he's sort of a, also a family legend, even though he's not part of the family. He um, came from Wisconsin, I believe, in the 30s and started doing, he invested in a big uh, development project. Housing developments were a new concept. They also failed back then. <laughs> so he had put a lot of money into the area. Uh, and he came from, he had already worked, sort of developed another area of Florida called Arcadia. And so they started building something in this region and then it failed. So as my mother said, this is why there were sidewalks in the wild palmettos. They were just sidewalks that went nowhere because they, they started <laughs> building and then they just had to stop. So that just adds a sort of another level to the surreal nature of Rattlesnake, Florida. There are different sort of legends about this, but maybe, you know, a, a Florida native told him this is a great place for rattlesnake and you can actually eat it and catch it. And, you know, so he caught them and ate them. The family ate them and they thought it was great. This is the <laughs> sort of story, apocryphal story, perhaps. But he decided to start a cannery, which he did in this other area. Then he moved it. He heard that there was this this open area which with very few people living in it and he moved his establishment there and was able to convince them to name it Rattlesnake Florida. And convinces them because he's drawing quite a bit of traffic off the road to give the place a post office. <laughs> now this isn't just a good marketing ploy for his cannery, although it's that too. This post office becomes the third most popular destination for postmarks in the country. <laughs> Our mom once went to hell in the Cayman Islands yeah. and sent us a postcard. That's what's happening here. People are coming from all over the place to send postcards from Rattlesnake, Florida. Yeah. It was tied with Christmas, Florida and Santa Claus, Indiana. <laughs> so there actually was enough work for a postmaster there and at the beginning George End was the postmaster. He was the Chamber of Commerce, he was the mayor, he was basically like the whole town, he was half the population. Well I know still today many many people from the British Isles love to go to Florida on holiday. Hmm. So was she loving it in Florida? Uh, I don't know if she was loving it. <laughs> Susan Stone talked to her mom about this who grew up there and you know it was a hard hard scrabble existence, but I think there was something about the the adventure of it that appealed. This is the depression. You make it where you can. Mm. And they would pay people a dollar a snake. Oh my gosh. His family is catching rattlesnakes, but they're also paying people to catch rattlesnakes for them. You get a dollar for That's a rattlesnake. That's a lot during the depression. It's a lot, yeah. You get five dollars for a really big one. Whoa. One day, my grandmother looked out the window and she heard this rattle. And she looked and there was a rattlesnake up the strike and on either side of the rattlesnake were her two cats. But the snake couldn't decide which to strike at because it was dead set in the center of two cats. So it kind of looked at one and it looked at the other and it rattled its tail. <laughs> and so she quickly, you know, said, you know, like, go get Mr. End, you know, and, and they sent, she sent for Mr. End. But before he got there, the snake tried to strike at the cat, missed the cat, but struck at the cat. And so my grandmother just whopped it. <laughs> She's not about to lose her cat 
for one dollar. So she just <laughs> whacks its head off. Ugh. And there's another snake for the cannery. <laughs> this is a crazy landscape to grow up in. Yeah. I mean, even when I grew up there, and I grew up in Boca Raton, which is a suburb. It's not far from Fort Lauderdale. We still have iguanas, lizards, alligators, all kinds of crazy animals. I always tell people that Florida is like its own country, which I sort of love about it. I also don't mind not living there. <laughs> it's definitely a place for people with some spirit of adventure. <laughs> so George End is the postmaster of Rattlesnake, Florida, until he dies. Hmm. Do you want to guess how Georgian died? Oh. Tragic snake bite incident. Uh. <laughs> Indeed. He was showing off for tourists. And um, did not take the anti-venom for some reason. Probably alcohol was involved. Then his wife took over as the postmaster, and my grandmother worked there with her. And then when she died, in 1950, my grandmother took over as postmaster of Rattlesnake. That's that's the weirdest life trajectory ever. <laughs> yeah, from from Highland dancer in yeah. urban Glasgow to, to postmaster of Rattlesnake. <laughs> I think that was not a life that she probably thought was going to be hers. <laughs> But it was, mm. and here she is running the post office. She is selling postcards, sending postcards, and of course dealing with all the mail for the local population. <laughs> but my favorite part of this story is that Susan Stone's grandfather didn't want to have a rattlesnake address. And so he drove all the way to Tampa and had his post office box at the Tampa post office. Wow. So people <laughs> are driving from all over the world to get this rattlesnake postmark, but apparently quite a few of the people who actually live in Rattlesnake <laughs> would prefer not to, and therefore go and get a Tampa mailbox. <laughs> so the postmaster of Rattlesnake did not have a Rattlesnake post office That's box. Great. This seemed unusual to me to have a woman be the postmaster in this really deeply patriarchal society in the 1950s. 30s. Mm. I actually asked Susan about that, if this was unusual, and she had just found the answer to this question in a book she had randomly picked up the day before our interview mm. called How the Post Office Created America by Winifred Gallagher, and it gave this fascinating bit of history that I never knew. After the Civil War in the United States, postal workers had to swear an oath that they had never aided the Confederacy. <laughs> So now, this means that all the white Southern men are disqualified. The vast majority of white men in South have fought for the Confederacy. So now, you cannot be a postal worker. <laughs> and this sets a precedent that suddenly, all of the postmasters are women or black. All of these identities that never would have been allowed mm. government jobs. Or Scottish immigrants. Exactly. <laughs> At this point, become the only ones in government jobs. Yeah. So the, the precedent becomes female postmasters, black postmasters, being the norm. Mm. And this is 
one of those first new jobs to open up for women in 19th century America, uh, sort of alongside librarian. Yeah. You could be a nurse or you could be a teacher. Then all of a sudden there's this new job of librarian, as you talk about in our bookmobile episode. Yeah. This is another new career option for women. Cool. But eventually, the cannery runs out of rattlesnakes. <laughs> they have caught all of them. Oh, they didn't use sustainable practices. Unfortunately, <laughs> this is an environmentally unsustainable process here. And so the cannery is sold to the rival rattlesnake cannery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there are two rattlesnake canneries in Rattlesnake. Of course. But that eventually closes too. Without the reptilorium going, Rattlesnake stops being such a destination. Does Rattlesnake still exist? The buildings are mostly gone. Tampa has expanded out over Rattlesnake. But I am so utterly delighted with the story of the postmaster of Rattlesnake. And I am so thrilled that Susan Stone <laughs> brought it to us for this episode. <laughs> At Girls Can Crate, our mission is to inspire girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every month, they deliver a fearless female role model to your door. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. I love their new digital subscriptions, which come straight to your inbox. If you're on a budget, they have mini mailers and then the full crates, which come out every month. They are really amazing. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E dot com, and enter the code HERNAME, you'll get 20% off your first crate on any subscription. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com and make sure that you use the code HERNAME, all one word, so they know we sent you. For our next story, we're headed 700 miles up the east coast of the U.S., and 200 years back in time to the British colony in Connecticut. Hi, I'm Lisa Williamson. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I am a novice family historian and researcher. I happened upon a woman named Prudence Punderson in my family line about a year ago. And when I did a Google search, as I do with all the new people I come across, a whole new world opened up. I found out that Prudence was a noted needlewoman and many of her pieces are housed in the Connecticut Historical Society Museum. She's been written up by historians She's been featured in newspapers across the century about every 100 years. There's a write-up about her and her needlework. I know what all of our listeners are thinking. The noted needlewoman, colonial America, we know what this looks like. Mm -hmm. I promise you, you are not in any way imagining what this needlework looks like. Ha! In an era and a place where needlework has very specific rules and forms and patterns, mm -hmm. where you make samplers or very stylized forms or floral patterns, yeah. this is something entirely new. Huh. So I really encourage our listeners to take a second 
and look at our show notes so you can look at these embroideries that we're going to be talking about. Oh. It's not just a regular sampler, but it's actually a depiction of her in her house depicting the life phases. So her most famous piece is called The First, Second, and Last Scene of Mortality. The thing that makes this piece stand out is that it's a two-dimensional scene of art where women, like you said, had very specific mediums that they could work in. She could do needlework. Maybe she would have been a painter, but in 1758 or 1780, when she made this piece, painting a scene of her family life wasn't something that was acceptable for her. This is a scene in an 18th century parlor, sort of a triptych. It is such a poignant story of the brief life of a woman. Her life is depicted, so it has her sitting at a table with a pair of scissors, an inkwell, a compass, a ruler. And I thought, again, going back to what were women allowed to do and think and be? Well, here's a woman who's using math who's using natural history, who's observing wildlife to create these pieces of art. It shows her sitting, crafting her needlework. It shows her as an infant in a cradle. It also shows a black slave rocking her as an infant in a cradle, which is disturbing and something I have to think about deeply. And then it shows her coffin with her initials on it. So I don't know if she was having a premonition, like my life is short, or if she just realized this was the time that she was in. She was going to live to be 26 years old. I've literally never seen anything like this anywhere in my life. Ah. This is as wildly creative as any piece of art that anyone has ever done. Awesome. Well, should I Google it? Yeah, you should. Whoa. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it looks like like genre painting combined with Renaissance themes. <laughs> right, in colonial but, Connecticut. Yeah, <laughs> but then a kind of medieval 2D style in yeah. colonial Connecticut. In Needlepoint. Yeah. But it's not just important from a feminist or an artistic perspective. It has turned out to be an invaluable historical document in and of itself. Hmm. Eminent historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, uh-huh. who I know you're working on a future episode with, right, has written about Punderson's work and talks about this is one of the only representations we have of what this kind of a room would have looked like, which oh, is wild. That is wild. But they just were not representing this kind of a home Hmm. sphere in art at this point. She says the focus on the female life cycle, the integration of furniture and textiles, the acknowledgement of the inequality with the enslaved person rocking the cradle. Yeah. This is much more complete than most of what has been written since. I love that it's her work, something that she created that has kept her place in history. It's so unusual for women of this time period to be remembered at all. 
and to be remembered for something that you created, something that you did, not for being the support staff of some other thing that happened. Yeah. You aren't married to someone important. You didn't raise someone important. You made a thing that was remarkable and worthy of remembering. The other thing I love about this is the idea that we find stories from artifacts. Mm, yeah. That Punderson's art tells us something about 18th century life that no one else has told us. Mm-hmm. No one has thought to pay attention to this or work on it. And our own women's stories, are our artifacts from our family history yeah. sometimes can give us those kinds of details. If we will be detectives yeah. about these artifacts, we can learn enormous truths about what our history is that that have been just completely overlooked in the official record-keeping history of births and deaths and yeah. property. One of my favorite examples is in our own family history, I remember being just absolutely struck by reading our great-grandmother's will. Mm. And in this will, this woman who has absolutely nothing She's living in a bedroom of her daughter's house. She has been poor her entire life and is now poorer. Mm. And she leaves to her daughter in her will a pair of bedroom slippers and the suitcase full of walnuts under her bed. (laughs) I love this. I have no idea how or why she has a suitcase full of walnuts (laughs) under her bed. I don't know if her daughter knew that this suitcase full of walnuts was there. But I just, I feel like I learned so much about her, about her life, about the kind of person she was, but also the kind of things she went through because who saves a suitcase full of walnuts yeah. when you're living with your daughter? Yeah. People who have been poor, mm. people who have had nothing drag a suitcase full of walnuts around with them. <laughs> and and I just, that very specific and odd artifact yeah. in that will is so illuminating to me. I feel like I learned more about her in that sentence than in everything else I knew about her. Yeah. Prudence died in 1784, just two months after her only daughter was born. And one twist to that is about 100 years later, after the piece was created in 1875, her son-in-law had taken her needlework and her wedding gown on exhibit to the state fair. And so her son-in-law carried on her history and was so proud of this woman's work and what it meant to his wife, her daughter. And that is when her work starts receiving recognition. And now her work is housed in the Connecticut Historical Museum. Cool. This is famous, important work now because she did it and then people valued it Yeah. and brought it to the attention of the public. You need men to care about their female ancestors too, yeah. not just women. You know, the same theme over and over again. Mm-hmm. Women's history is not a niche subject. Everyone mm-hmm. should know and care about their female family history. The thing that is so enthralling for me about Prudence is I didn't grow up knowing my ancestry. 
because I was abducted as an infant at age six months. And so I didn't know my father's line at all and Prudence is on my father's line. So in my early teens and into my 30s, I started doing research because I needed to piece together that missing family. And that's how I found Prudence. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, right? You were abducted as an infant? And yes. Yeah, just my mother was in an unhappy marriage and took my sister and I and left the state of New York and went across country to California. So as an adult, when I landed in Salt Lake City, I was in the middle of family history land. Right. And I had ancestor envy so bad because I didn't have people who were doing cool things like riding across plains in covered wagons. And I thought, my people are from New York. I've got to have colonial ancestors somewhere. And so I started digging. And the more research I did, I found out that I have a really magnificent family history women who were making a mark literally with the needle you know there's lots of motivations for why people research their family history but i think for me at least this is a huge part of it it really does help me feel sort of rooted and grounded in something i i know where i came from it has been really meaningful to me to have female role models to look back and go, all right, my grandmothers did it and I can do it too. Right. I understand yeah. that impulse to really want those. I want my stories. I want my people. For me, that's one of the main reasons why I study history in general. And it doesn't even have to be family history, but just to see that you are playing a part in this long arc of a story that goes way, way back, all the way back. Um, it, it gives our short lives a lot more meaning, I think. We're playing a part mm. in the big human saga. As an activity in some of my classes, we'll do a day of just digging into family histories. And oh. I have a lot of students push back against it. And they're obviously extremely uncomfortable. And I think that that's something that you know, people who are really enthusiastic about genealogy and family history, that they sometimes can overlook that for a lot of people, family doesn't mean love and acceptance and meaning. And digging into it is traumatizing and painful. Like, why would I want to know these people? But I think that often genealogy in family history can mean honoring these people, creating almost like a hagiography, like, you know, turning them into these icons of strength and perfection. Mm. But that's not always true. You know, not every human is this icon of strength and perfection. They <laughs> made terrible choices sometimes. Their traumas get passed down to us through the generations. But even then, this is what I talk to those students about anyway, even then, we don't have to idealize them. They don't have to be great figures of wisdom and strength. We can understand why they did what they did and where they went wrong and how they went wrong. So even if we don't like them, even if we don't honor them, I think understanding still what the arc is 
that's what the story is and how the plot has been playing out so far can really help us understand why we are who we are today. Well, with that perfect segue, I want to introduce my next guest, artist Michelle Thorley. Because, of course, part of the motivation for this episode is to get people to try and put the women back in their own family history, not just in the history. But alongside this reluctance sometimes because of negative associations with your family or your history, there's another pretty significant problem here, which is that the very idea of finding your ancestors is much, much easier for some people than for others. For many people, especially people of color, there aren't these long lines of documents and stories and records. And even what you can find can be, as we were just talking about, deeply, deeply traumatic. And Michelle Thorley is doing some really incredible work on doing sort of an alternative family history when you don't have the history. Huh. We barely have stories of the men. We don't have stories of the women. And yet we know they were there. But they had to be. They had to be fighters. For the longest time, I didn't have photographs. So that's why I started painting, honestly. That's why I learned how to paint. So I could paint my ancestresses back into my life. She had to make a decision. Do I just not have a story? Do I not get to have a story? Or do I need to find a way to create that story? Mm -hmm. And through the years, it's been like six years now, I have about seven or eight photographs, which I'm really grateful for. But that's how it all started. I didn't, I couldn't see their faces. And so I was going to reach into the past and I was going to bring their faces. Michelle Thorley's paintings are amazing. We'll have several of them on our website, and we'll also have links to her Instagram, which is really incredible. The way that she brings these women back to life, the artifacts that she includes in these paintings, she'll find, okay, here's the kind of fabric they made, and paint on that. Mm -hmm. So that this, my grandmother is in this painting, even if she's not in this painting. A lot of the paintings you see with ribbons, those are just like me seeing a face in my head or in a dream, and then just putting it onto the canvas. I look about what I have found about my indigenous grandmother. So my, my grandmother would be considered mestizas. Her father was from Spain and her mother was indigenous to Tonac from uh, Veracruz. So her marrying him, my great grandmother marrying him, you know, gave her status being married to a Spaniard. But I look at my grandmother, my grandmother told everyone she was born in Spain. She had very light skin. And so she said, everyone, I'm raza pura, like I'm, I'm the pure blood. And she lied. And it's through her lying that I found out we actually have African mulatto libre, like a freed slave, like a half, you know, half black, half white, he freed. How did he get free? Where, you know, who is his mother? And through DNA tests, I found out my both my dad and I have DNA in Cameroon, and there was a huge slave trade from Cameroon to Veracruz to work in the coffee plantations, which is where my family was at, working in the coffee plantations. And so I would love to fill in the pieces of that story, but that's our family history. There's a great documentary by Henry Louis Gates about 
finding your secret black grandma and talking about this problem that for especially South America, Central America, Native American populations, indigenous populations anywhere, this narrative of of white colonialism and white supremacy that has been put on top of things for so long shaped the narrative of family histories as well. If you have to be as white as possible to be safe and successful and to keep your children safe and successful, then you are going to be as white as possible and find ways to make that narrative work. Mm-hmm. There's a lack of documents, mm-hmm. but also just a lack of stories, the lack of connections, because you need to not be related to the people that you're related to. Mm-hmm. Which also means that you are carrying around all of that internalized shame and trauma. Yeah. You know, Brene Brown's done all this research about shame and authenticity and how that is connected to depression, mental illness, eating disorders, rage, you know, all all these terrible things. And you realize that all comes from not being authentic to who you are and denying who you are. And even that internalized racism where you have to lie to yourself about who you are to survive every day. And then you get that generational and it becomes compounded on all lines of your family tree. This denial and shame and lack of authenticity. And now, of course, with DNA testing being really widely available, all of these narratives are breaking up. Yeah. People are finding out who they actually are and how that does not match with the story that they have been told. I'm here today and I think, now what? And I decided I am in a safe place where I can claim all these things without I get snotty comments and dirty looks, but I don't get slapped down. I don't get abused. I don't get, I still may get opportunities taken away, but for the most part, no. And I can claim these things and I can restore these things and I can heal these things. It's a lot of work, but I do it for my kids. And I do it for my grandmas because I don't see a good future for my children if we keep pushing forward into the future without trying to heal the past. We can take care of ourselves now, and I think that does reach its tentacles into the past and and heal. I, I know it does because I felt it. Maybe I can't explain it. I feel like I've felt that too, those connections that reach backwards and and really do change something. They really do alter something somewhere in the timeline. That's an indigenous belief. The time is a circle and that the past is actually in front of us, not behind us. I'm trying to put a whole person back together, not just their face. So in their body, what clothing they'd be wearing. So I'd go and do Google searches and find out why were they wearing those clothing and their jewelry? Because I needed to paint the full person. Family history for women is is fabric, is textiles, is knitting, is, is shawls. And I can feel connected to them by that. How would they wear their hair? And why did they wear their hair that way? And what did it mean to wear their hair that way? And whenever you see a braid in a woman's hair, you usually know that there was a mother or an auntie or a, or a sister that helped with those braids. 
And so braiding for people of color is truly family history, especially for women. And then I would do those braids in my hair and put them in my daughter's hair and I could feel connected. Mm. You're connected to someone, you're connected to other women, your mother, your sisters, your neighbors, someone is doing this amazing hairdo. Mm, cool. She's literally carrying these women's identities on her head. Yeah. Bringing them back to life in the present by bringing back the things that they spent their time on, mm. the things that marked them as who they were. I love that physical invocation of those markers. Mm. The acknowledgement of the connections between women. Because we're never going to have women's stories most of the time. The things that women were doing, nobody bothered to write down. One of the things that I think people don't talk about for with family history and people of color, maybe because they don't know or they don't have enough racial literacy or racial stamina to talk about these things, is that recently a lot of documents were made available from slave registries. And everyone was so excited, like, you can just look them up, it's easy, find their name. But what they did not talk about is the emotional and genealogical trauma that would happen. And I've had so many people reach out to me and said, I was excited to do my family history. I found this record. I saw the name. I saw the price tag listed next to the name. And I just hit the floor. Why did that happen? And that has happened to me. Everyone's like, oh, family history is so fulfilling. It's so wonderful. And we need to be, we need to be talking about that. We need to address generational trauma and say, yes, this record is awesome. And yes, it's exciting. But you I also feel this and that is okay too. There's this concept that I really love brought to the public attention by Leila Saad of being a good ancestor of doing the work to sort of exercise the demons of the past and give the next generation a better shot. Mm. That you can be the one that breaks this chain and you can be the good ancestor who frees some of that traumatic, shameful hiding of the past and lets the mm. next generation go forward with their identity intact, knowing who they are and finding ways to be proud of who they are. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to me really powerfully because I think this is obviously a very specific issue that I'm never going to have to confront. But we all have family cycles that we would like to stop. And yeah. the, the idea that we can be the one to write a new story to say this ends with me. Yeah. That is such an important lesson that we can get from family history too. Yeah, and it's all, all of it is so interesting because in the end, it's historical storytelling about ourselves by linking ourselves to the past. Right. And sometimes our elders keep us in the dark on purpose. That's their way of saying mm. this cycle stops. Like, I don't want you to know about your great grandparents. I mean, sometimes mm. there's enough trauma there that people are like, that person doesn't deserve to be known or honored. And so mm. the silence can also speak volumes. Sometimes it's an active choice not to tell a story. And so in reclaiming those stories in our generations, um, we might, as we said, you might unearth things you wish you didn't have to know. Yeah. You might discover some things about who you are 
that are really upsetting. Hmm. So it's also a journey into knowledge. And yeah. knowledge is great and scary. But the more you know, the more you can see the bigger picture, understand the big, long saga that played out before you came along. Not always a happy story. Usually not a happy story. I mean, life was hard. The yeah. past was a rough place to be. Right. <laughs> when we reclaim the stories and revive people from the past, like Michelle Thorley is doing, what we're really doing is we're inventing a new story. Like we're always talking about, when we tell historical stories, we are picking and choosing what are the important parts and who are the main characters and what is the arc of the narrative. So it's kind of like creating ourselves. Yeah. It is easy to feel if you don't have much information. Uh, it We're really lucky. We have tons of information mm -hmm. about our family history. And I can see feeling really sad and upset if you don't have that information. But I think it is also the more information you have, the easier it is to pretend you're not creating something. Mm, the yeah. easier it is for us to say, we're just telling what happened. Yeah. And none of us are doing that. All of us are choosing. All of us are. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm making an entire story around the suitcase full of walnuts. Yeah. That might just be that she saw walnuts on sale yeah. and bought walnuts. Right. right. It might be nothing. And so we're always all doing that. Yeah. And some of us just have more luxury to pretend we're not <laughs> than others do. <laughs> I love this sort of call to detective work that Michelle Thorley is giving to us all yeah. to build those connections, no matter how much or how little we know, to find whatever ways we can to find out what our women's lives would have been like. I remember in the beginning when I sat down and I was searching for records and then I would find somebody, especially a woman, I found my second great-grandmother had signed her wedding document, which wasn't normal at that time and her beautiful her name's Anna and her beautiful A as a creative person I would find these documents and then I I could almost see what was really happening around me as I clicked on the computer I could see these ribbons these connections that were always there but then becoming strengthened and more vibrant and that's why a lot of my paintings have these white and red ribbons connecting each other because that's what's happening. The paintings are my reality, not the clicking the computer, what it feels like anyway. Having a mixed ancestry, I don't fit into a category. I'm mestiza, I'm, I'm mixed. So to bring all these women together that make up me, who maybe wouldn't have liked each other, <laughs> is a hard thing. But when I put them all on the canvas together, and link us all together through me, the unifier. It's a healing, I feel like, for all of us. Our next guest is a little different because this is a story that I actually heard almost 10 years ago, and it's stuck in my brain as being just absolutely amazing. And so as soon as I thought of the idea for this episode, I knew I wanted to include it. 
My name is Irit Namatinia Aharoni. I live in Thailand, but I'm from Israel. I'm a Bollywood dance teacher, although in my previous life, if you want to call it that, I'm a chemist. Irit Namatinia is actually my Bollywood dance teacher. <laughs> and I first heard this story in a Bollywood class in her basement in Beijing. <laughs> So the story that I'm going to tell is a story that was told to me by my paternal grandmother, who was born in Uzbekistan in a city called Samarkand in 1918. Every time I would go to her house, she would tell me all these amazing stories. And this was one of them, which really ingrained in my mind. But also my uncle, her oldest son, he decided to compile all the family history. And he actually uh, put all these details in the journal. It's, it's an amazing read. It's in Hebrew, of course. So I, I would like to give my grandmother the credit for telling me, but I also want to give my uncle, Professor Herzl Haroni, the credit of writing this story because uh, so many details in it that I didn't know. So my grandmother, like I said, was born in 1918 in Samarkand. And in 1917, one year before that, was the Russian Bolshevik Revolution. It, it was a time of a lot of unrest. And when uh, my grandmother was still in her mother's tummy, there was a robbery in their house. There was a lot of robberies going on at that time. And very luckily, my grandmother and her mother and the whole family came out unscathed. So when she was born, the first name that they gave her was Tamara. The people said to my great-grandfather, they said, no, 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 you cannot call her Tamara. You have to call her Nekedam, which actually means lucky. So he changed her name to Nekedam. Like I said, after the revolution, there was a lot of unrest in that area, a lot of robberies, a lot of political unrest. They even feared for their life. And they decided to escape from Uzbekistan. This was in 1932. So my grandmother was, what, around 14 years old? Now, because the family are merchants, they have connections to smugglers. So they are paying smugglers to smuggle them from Uzbekistan to Jerusalem. Hmm. This was illegal. It was not legal to escape. So they had to prepare uh, not only provisions and, and things like that, but also a, a route by which to escape. And they used smugglers to take them across borders and to show them the route. They took a very long route, going all the way down from Uzbekistan, down into Afghanistan, down all the way through what was then India, and then via Iran, Syria, Lebanon, and into Israel. I got on Google Maps and I, I plotted out this route that they took. 6,000 miles! Whoa! On camels, with babies. Amazing. 
the journey was done on camelback and it was not just their family it was a whole bunch of families and on the way they would pay the smugglers with jewelry with whatever they had you can imagine for a 14 year old 15 year old girl such a long journey was very very difficult i mean it really stayed in her mind but this particular story is the one that she used to tell me my grandmother had a sister that was born just before they left Samarkand in 1930. Her sister's name was Sonia. So when they left Samarkand, Sonia was two, three years old, a toddler. And a toddler obviously cannot walk these distances. So the, the elderly and the babies would sit on the camelbacks or on the donkey backs and the more abled, bodily able children would walk alongside them. This is an extremely dangerous, if the baby cries, you might all be killed. Oh. And so Irit's grandmother is hearing these stories of people smothering babies. Yeah. To keep them quiet at, at terrible moments. It's one of the classic scenarios that is presented in ethics classes today. My great-grandmother was sitting with Sonia on camelback on a saddle that has like a balance. So there is one person sitting on one side and another person sitting on the other side. So on one side, my great-grandmother, her name was Yafa Fuzailov, well, Khanimov, because she got married. She was sitting on the right side and on the left side was sitting another lady and because she was holding Sonia the baby the saddle would kind of keep shifting uh, like a balance to the heavier side my grandmother who was like I said 14 or 15 she was so worried that after everything she'd seen that they would decide to leave her little sister Sonia out in the desert and continue without them because the lady on the other side kept complaining. She walked by the camel and she kept pushing up that side so that the other lady wouldn't complain. Four months of walking, 12 to 16 hours a day. Wow. Now, and imagine how much harder this is that these are over some of the most rugged mountains, mm -hmm. the most impassable territory, through the desert, pushing up the saddle to save your baby sister for 6,000 miles. Oh my gosh. Now we know that the story that in Ellis Island, everybody get assigned a new name. We've, we now know that's not true. Mm -hmm. They just arbitrarily assigned you a name. Yeah. However, in this story... When she arrived in Israel, at the borders, they asked her, what is your name? And she said, Nekedam. And Nekedam is, is, doesn't mean anything in Hebrew. It means something in Bukhara language, in Russian, Uzbek language, but nothing in, in Hebrew. So they said, no, 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 that's, no, that, that, that's not a name. Your name is Sarah. <laughs> and that's how she was named Sarah, and she became Sarah ever since then.
Our final guest is Sachiko Burton, and this is the story of her great-grandmother Hisa and her grandmother Fumie. I'm Rebecca Sachiko Burton, but I go by Sachiko. It is Japanese because I am a quarter Japanese. My father was born in Japan and immigrated to the States. I lived in Japan when I was small and grew up Japanese-American. I have seven kids. I homeschool, I do kundalini yoga, I write. I live in the eastern part of Washington State where there are a lot of radioactive tumbleweeds. Our story starts in a tiny village in the mountains outside Nagoya. A poor girl lives with her family on a silk farm in the mountains. Her name is Hisa Shitagaki, and her life is already hard, involving lots of hard work, very little social status. When the family discovers that Hisa's older brother has gambled away the entire farm. Ah. And so she had gone down into Nagoya City to basically indenture herself as a servant and earn back the family farm. And that was when my great-grandfather, Sentro, who was the last surviving heir of the last surviving samurai in our family line, grew up like a prince, met her, and married her. Sentaro Suzuki had an arranged marriage to a very socially appropriate highborn woman, but he had other ideas. He announced to his father that he has found his own wife. <laughs> he has met this hill girl mm. from a poor silk farm in the mountains, and he's going to marry her instead. Mm. So their first child, that was my grandmother, when they took her to go and see my great-great-grandfather, that was when he told them that he was disowning them. They build a life together, they have children, and then the world begins to change. Uh-oh. When World War II was ramping up, my great-grandfather gathered his family together and said, I've been to war, I know what the Japanese army is like, and I'm telling you, don't tell anybody else, because this was hugely treasonous. We are going to lose, and the U.S. is going to win. And we need to expect that they're going to flatten our city. Wow. You're not supposed to say things no. like this in <laughs> Japan. Mm -mm. You never admit that you're going to lose. Yeah. And you're supposed to die rather than... Prepare to lose. Then prepare to lose. <laughs> yeah. But he saw the writing on the wall and he wanted his family to be safe. My great-grandfather had become a camera repairman, which was like bleeding-edge technology at the time. And they had a pretty prosperous business. So with this in mind, my great-grandmother, Hisa, dug a pit, lined it with sand, and it was ready for whenever the U.S. would start dropping firebombs. She realizes... If it's lined with sand, it will keep things safe and dry. When that happened, she threw everything in there, family records, cameras, equipment, tools, everything that they couldn't replace and covered it over. And that's what survived. They were able to rebuild after the war. I thought about this because she had spent her whole life having to clean up the messes of the men around her, that she was well-versed in plan B. Ah, she knows how to prepare to lose. Yes. How do you line your life with sand <laughs> and make it so it's easy for you to throw the most valuable things inside when something comes in and destroys everything? 
Ooh. Right? That's my new motto. Line your life with sand. Wow. But, you know, you can't throw people in the pit. (laughs) And so once the U.S. was napalming Nagoya, she and my grandmother, my grandmother was the oldest at the time. She was 15. They had to put the two youngest, who were babies, into Ombuhimo and run through the city. But the city streets were full of napalm, and so they had to run building to building, front door to back door, through homes and through businesses and, like, practically jumping hurdles in order to get out of the city and up into Nagoya City Park, where they could get away from the worst of the burning. They found their Russian Orthodox priest and his wife, and miraculously the baby slept through the night while they watched their city burn, watched their homes burn. And so, you know, thinking about that, in some of my harder moments, I've thought, if my home is burning, can I walk through fire? Could I grab everything, put people on my back and run? Then with the the babies on their backs, you know, my grandmother carrying her younger siblings, they walk all the way back up into the mountains to that silk farm. I imagine this return. This is the family that sent her out to indenture herself to save them. Mm. The brother who destroyed her life. And now she's back after leaving all of this behind, marrying a samurai, running a, a camera shop. This is the equivalent of owning an Apple store, right? This is cutting edge technology. Yeah. This has to have been so depressing. It was hard on them to go back to the mountains and they sleep in the same place with all of the silkworms, which if you have never slept near silkworms, it's like sleeping near a biological textile mill. It's very, very loud. It's very chittery and unnerving. And my grandmother to this day still hates it. So I have a recording here of just a few silkworms eating. So imagine this time several hundred thousand all day, all night, in the room where you are living with all of your children. Whoa! It's creepy. Eventually, they are able to go back to Nagoya and they're able to rebuild because she has kept everything safe in this sand pit. Ah. And thanks to her rebuilding... They were able to become prosperous again, even though my great-grandfather had been forced to work on um, mustard gas in the factories for the military, and it ruined his lungs, and he died early because of it. But she was able to keep everybody going, the entire large family. And so she was still living with my Aunt Kinye when I was a baby, and I lived in Tokyo, and when she took care of me and, and I visited her, and was, by all accounts, just an incredibly happy, loving person. But during those very early post-war years, when the U.S. still has a significant military presence in Japan, something really remarkable happens. After World War II, after the U.S. had napalmed Nagoya and they were rebuilding, my great-grandfather had told his oldest daughter, my grandmother, to go and invite some U.S. servicemen to come and spend Christmas Eve with them. Years earlier, during the Russo-Japanese War, Sachiko's great-grandfather was a soldier in the Japanese army occupying Russia. 
Because he was Russian Orthodox, a Russian Orthodox family took him in on Christmas Eve. I mean, he was an enemy soldier. And this left such an impression on him that he swore that someday he would do the same thing. She finds a group of American soldiers, including a Swedish-American Mormon boy from Utah named Bob Swenson. (laughs) And that was how my grandparents met. Wow. They get married. Bob is shipped back to the U.S., but returns really quickly to Japan. And there they live with Fumie's mother, Hisa, the firewalker. And has my, my dad in a very, very difficult birth that nearly killed them both. And my great-grandparents, you know, there was a lot of prejudice at the time. There's even a lot of prejudice today about Hafu, Japanese children. But they never hesitated to love and claim my father. They were so proud of him. Eventually, once the U.S. gets rid of the Exclusion Acts, barring Japanese people from emigrating to the U.S., the Swenson family moves to the U.S., and that's where Sachiko is eventually born. And that's where I originally planned on ending this story. But tragically, on the very day that I recorded this interview with Sachiko, her grandmother, Fumie Suzuki Swenson, died. So, in Fumie's honor and in Sachiko's, It feels appropriate to end with this piece, which you hear right now, played by a music box, which Fumie gave to Sachiko's family. So in the spirit of Mother's Day and this episode, I asked our mother, Cindy Henderson, to record the song for this episode in a kind of tribute to this family of remarkable, resilient women, and to thank Sachiko for sharing this amazing story with us. You know, the impression that I've gotten, especially growing up, how I did, is that we learn family history in order to commit more fully to doing what our families have always done, staying where our families have always stayed, believing what they've always believed. But that's not the heritage that I've gotten from my grandmother and great-grandmother. Their heritage is you take the best parts with you. You go and find someplace else. Even if you have to walk through fire, Huge thanks to our guests, Lisa Williamson, Susan Stone, Sachiko Burton, Irit Amatinya, Michelle Thorley, and Adrienne. There are tons of amazing photos, links, and more on our website. You can see the remarkable artwork and photos that we've been talking about. There you can also sign up to become a patron of the What's Your Name podcast. There are donation levels starting at just a dollar a month, and you can get all kinds of great thank you gifts trading cards, cross-stitch patterns, even your own shout-out thank you on an episode. So check that out on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, and click donate. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. 
Music for this episode was performed by Cindy Henderson, Tria Logo, Jeff Kuno, Audionautics, Doug Maxwell, Son Horocho, Sir Cubworth, Nat Keefe and Hot Butter Drum, Slancha, Radio Harocho and Senen Seferino Huervo, Aaron Kenny, Zach Singer, and Boston Singh and Robert Stoddard. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. <laughs>